Welcome everyone. I'm still exploring, as you can tell. I'm still trying to find the best format for these weekly reflections. And I want to begin to broaden the scope a bit so that these reflections week to week, whether they're meandering, as many of them have been, or focused, as the last few weeks have been, so that they don't come off as intended only for preachers or for preaching. I really do want these reflections to be to be not for everyone, of course, but for, for anyone who's kind of drawn to the scriptures and and feels compelled to reflect prayerfully on them. So with that in mind, I, I've asked Father Christopher Brewer to talk with me this week about the text. We have this conversation pretty much every week anyway, and I thought it would be worthwhile to let you overhear it. And hopefully as he and I are talking through what we make of the readings or what the readings are making of us, something good will happen and something mysterious. We'll see, I guess. So Father Chris, thank you for, thank you for making time to do this. Oh man. Yeah. I'm so, so glad to do it. Like you said, we had these conversations anyway, so it's nice to, nice to have it here. Um, well, I mean, I know we're going to get into the, the text. But before before we do, given what you've said about kind of broadening this mm-hmm. a little bit, let's let's just talk a little bit maybe about the use of scripture, if you would, in general. Yeah, for people um, who aren't you, who aren't only preaching, right? For for anyone, right? Who's, yeah, exactly. Um, so you know already, but in our uh, small groups at at church, we've been going through Bonhoeffer and um, specifically some of his sermons and life together. And you and I have talked a bit about the place of scripture in, in Bonhoeffer's writings. And so maybe let, let's just start there because it's such a, yeah. it, it, he, he says some things that are pretty alarming at least certainly at first. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember it's probably been almost 20 years, I, I, I would guess, although, man, I'm terrible now. At, like if it was more than a couple of days ago, my sense of time is terribly warped. So it might have been five years ago, but I think it was more like 20. I know it was a long time, actually. I read his ethics and there's a passage in ethics where he, and I'll read it in just a moment, but he says, in effect... Scripture belongs to the preacher. The sermon belongs to the congregation. And I was so scandalized by it, like as a as a, man, a young pastor and preacher. And I respected Bonhoeffer enough that I, I didn't just immediately burn the book, but I had no idea what to do with it. And even now, all these years later, as I'm working through all of his works again, I... I can see nuances that were completely lost on me then, but it is still a bracing kind of claim. And I, I think it's, but it, it's, it's a kind of jolt I think we need. So let me, let me read some of the passage and then let's talk a little bit about what he doesn't mean, like clarify, and then why I think it matters for us, right? Whether we're preachers or priests or, or, preacher, or pastors or whatever, like no matter who we are, no matter what we're doing, why I think what he's saying matters for us. So this is in his ethics in the Fortress Press edition. It's toward the end of the book. The office of proclamation preaching 
as witness to Jesus Christ, is bound to Holy Scripture. Here we must dare to assert, right? So he has some sense that he's making a bold claim. Here we must dare to assert that Scripture essentially belongs to the preaching office, while the sermon belongs to the congregation. Scripture essentially belongs to the preaching office, while the sermon belongs to the congregation. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you can imagine how that sound sounded to me 15 or 20 years ago and is going to sound to most people. I mean, how does it strike you before before I read on and oh, show man, you how I mean, it's clarifying it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like an affront to my low church sensibilities. I mean, it, sound, <laughs> it feels elitist. Right. right, yeah, elitism, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it violates our right, our sense of right, and it, it violates it in, in, in a way that feels elitist. And, and strikingly, Bonhoeffer knows that. As, as you'll hear, I'll read in just a moment. He addresses both of those concerns. And I think we have seen multiple kinds of elitism making that elitism, making that kind of claim or something like it. I mean, you could have like a, a clerical elitism. You could have a an academic or scholarly elitism. You you can have a spiritual elitism, you know. So like in some circles, you have to be ordained. You have to be ordained in a particular way to have the right to use these texts. Or you might make the case that only the people who have earned the right through a certain study and credentialing, academic credentialing, have a right. And of course, we bristle. Those of us who raise like you and I've been raised bristle at either of those. But many of our churches do effectively function with a kind of elitism in terms of someone who has an anointing from the spirit to handle the, to handle the texts. Right. But be that as it may, Bonifer doesn't have any of that in view, right? Like he, he's right. making a different point. And I think it, it helps instead of hearing essentially like if in that sentence, scripture essentially belongs to the preaching office. If you hear it as primarily what he, what, what he means, and I'll, I'll read again in just a moment, I'll read his own words, but as I'm reading him, what he's saying is preaching is what orients the reading of the scripture for everyone else. We need preaching because it initiates a way of reading scripture that is true to the gospel of Jesus. Mm, okay. And that preaching, the sermon in the congregations gathering for worship, the sermon is the, is the, is the striking of the note we have to attune ourselves to, right? So it's it's the ringing of the bell that helps us to know how to handle Scripture beyond the walls of the congregational gathering. So he's not saying only the preachers are allowed or only the clergy are allowed to read. He's saying it's their responsibility to read it in such a way that it frees other people into reading and reading in ways that that aren't burdensome for them and for their neighbors. So that, that's at least the way I'm reading it. Let me let me put it, put it in his own words. Scripture needs to be interpreted and preached. In its essence, it is not a devotional book of the congregation. The interpreted sermon text belongs to the congregation, and starting from this basis, there is a searching in the Scriptures to see whether these things were so. That's the Acts 17 the Christians in, who were seeking these things out, right? So he's saying, I think, the sermon illuminates a text, and then that illuminated text guides the reading devotionally, outside of the gathering. Mm -hmm. Thus, 
As a borderline case, there exists the necessity of contradicting the sermon on the grounds of Holy Scripture. So there are times in which the congregation has to push back on the reading that's being offered, but that's borderline. However, even this, he says, presupposes that Holy Scripture belongs in essence to the teaching office. In other words, we need this pushback only because it matters so much that the sermon is faithful. Right? Like that's why it's needed. And he, he will say later, it must be clear, however, in saying all this, that the Holy Scripture is the book of the preacher. It must be clear, however, that these thoughts do not originate from an arrogant clerical presumption to instruct the masses. So again, it's not elitism. It's not clericalism. It's not a kind of spiritual supremacy. It's simply to say you have a responsibility as a preacher to set the tone, to help people hear what they need to hear in order to hear the scriptures devotionally in a way that's freeing for them. Right? Yeah. One more one more passage from him, because this this turns the knife that's already been thrust into our into our innards. When an individual Christian or group of Christian take hold of Holy Scripture by appealing to the equal rights of all Christians, to their own maturity in faith, and to the evidence of the biblical text, this is certainly not yet a sign of exceptional reverence and exceptional spiritual insight into the nature of divine revelation. Instead, it is the breeding ground of much audacity, disorder, rebellion, and spiritual confusion. So he's like, when you start claiming to have the right to handle the scripture for yourself, it, you're, you're setting the groundwork for rebellion and confusion. So, yeah, it's, it's an astoundingly provocative. I'm sure all that's made it worse. You, you, <laughs> but... <laughs> I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I think that's by and large exactly what I was uh, told for so long. I mean, you know, kind of, you know, get them saved and give them a Bible, <laughs> right? Go or or give them a Bible and then everything else will work itself out, whether they're saved or not. Yeah, <laughs> right. And if you're going to give it, just go ahead and start in Genesis. <laughs> Make sense of it. Yeah, I mean, this is a little too simple, but I think. We've assumed that the relationship with God, the only relationship with God that really matters, is one mediated through the individual's reading of the text. And I, and I think Bonifer rightly recognizes that that's a mistake. Like, mm -hmm. it's not to, he's not saying that we personally shouldn't be reading devotionally. He's he's saying instead that the Bible is not mine. It's the church's book. It's not my book. And th there really has to be a move toward recognizing that my reading is good only insofar as it acknowledges that I'm in no possession of the Word of God. Like that, that it's, not, it's not within my control. I think that, that, like that, that I'm not... And I think that's why when he talks about individual Christians or groups of Christians taking hold of Holy Scripture. Like there's a grasping, you know, like Philippians language that Jesus did not consider equality something to be grasped. There's no clinging in Jesus. I, th I think that that's what a lot of us have been taught to do with the Bible. We cling 
to our readings of scripture. We're, we're possessive and protective in a way that is false to the nature of God and therefore false to the nature of scripture and to our humanity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think of Jesus in the garden, right? Don't, don't cling to me. Yeah, that's right. And if you, if you look at that text with Mary, like you're talking about in John 20, yeah, there's this striking move in which she, before this happens, she, before she meets Jesus, she says, they have taken away my Lord. And then she has the encounter with him. He calls her name. She says, Rabbi. She's calling him by the name she's known him. Like the role he's had in her life. Mm -hmm. And then he says, don't cling to me. It's her ideas about him that are holding to him. And then he says, go. Like, go and tell the other disciples that I must ascend. And when she goes, she tells them that she has seen the Lord. And so there's a way in which her hands have opened. Like, yeah. like she's no longer, it's not my Lord that they've taken away, but mm -hmm. the Lord is risen. And like that, there, that kind of possessiveness, that we have to be broken free of it. And so the sermon then should, should liberate us to read scripture in that kind of yep yeah if you're if you're preaching faithfully it doesn't mean that i don't need to read devotionally it's that i can read devotionally in a way that will will free me up to be graceful to be a graceful presence to to the people around me right and so your your sermon is again striking the note i can attune to i can know okay that that's what i have to harmonize with and and i can do that because God has made that kind of gracefulness possible. I don't have to cling. I don't have to worry that in order for God's will to get done, I must be possessive and mm -hmm. clingy. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I know we need to get into the text here, but let me just one more question. Because I guess what I think about is being someone who is, who is preaching, is that, is that some kind of insane burden then that's placed on the preacher? No. And I, Bonhoeffer is really helpful on this too. I think that preaching is hard work, but it shouldn't be toilsome. And if there's toil in it, it's because you're trying to exert through your own effort, a pressure on the audience that will make them conform to what you think is the will of God, right? But that's, right. again, possessive. That's graspy and clingy, pushy. And, what you, again, it's not to say the sermon isn't hard work. It is hard. But it, it can't be toilsome in a way so that the intense, as if the intensity of your effort is going to bring about immediate results. Right? Like you, you have to be open-handed about what comes when the gospel is declared. And, and Bonifer is arguing that if you know that the goal of the sermon is for Jesus Christ to be seen and heard, mm -hmm. the living Jesus to be recognized, and that the texts all are in service of that recognition, then you just have to do the work, the hard work, of being faithful to the texts in that hope. 
and keeping your heart oriented to that hope for others. Mm-hmm. But mostly what you're working hardest at is not exerting your own pressure onto the people. <laughs> like, like you've got to have enough restraint. Like there has to be a, a sense of modesty and meekness, restraint, restrained strength on your part so that you're not exerting the pressure of your personality or your expertise in order to get the result you think God wants. Right. Yeah. That's why those of us who don't have a lot of personality or a lot of expertise um, are uh, less tempted than those of you who are talented and learned. (laughs) Well, I think I'm neither talented nor well-learned, and yet I feel very tempted to do that. So I'm somehow defying categories there. I just feel convicted by, by Bonhoeffer. No, that's, yeah, all of us are, I think. Um, well, perfect then. I mean, I think that's, this is, this is good given that I would like to start with the gospel, right? Okay. Since, since this need to, needs to be a work that attends to looking to Jesus, um, yeah. right? And, and this is how the gospel text this week starts in John 13. Of course, Jesus has washed his disciples feet. He's had this moment talking about this one who's going to, um, betray them. He dips the bread, gives it, gives it to Judas. This is the one is kind of revealed who's going to betray him. And then we pick up here at the Last Supper. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man has been glorified and God has been glorified in him. And that's just kind of a startling yeah. sort of line to open the gospel text on. So mm-hmm. I just wondered if you could maybe just start there for us. Well, one, one thread is the sense of timing. I mean, all the way through the Gospel of John and in the book of Revelation, there is this sense in which the, the flow of time is disrupted, that, that there are there's this age and the age to come and the end of ages are, are kind of overlapping and interpenetrating, and it's disorienting, right? And so for Jesus to say before he's dead or, or risen, And before Judas has even made it to the authorities, for Jesus to say, now the Son of Man has been glorified, it's it's startling, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it, theologically, it points to the ways in which Jesus is the end of the ages, who's bringing about the age to come in this present age. So he's always living in a a different time, timeliness than we are. So he's... He's got all the time he needs to be for us what we need. And therefore, we've got all the time we need. So I think that's that's a thread here. But really, the what hits me in the gut is that Judas has to leave the room in order for Jesus to do what he has to do. Mm. You know, and it, it's 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 possible to be glib in identifying with Judas, you know, to, to know that I I think I was raised in a, in a kind of Christianity that didn't give a damn purpose. I'm using that word purposely. Didn't give a damn about Judas. Mm -hmm. And then over time I've become friends with people who in reaction to that have been too quick to talk loosely about, you know, we are all Judas. Yeah. 
there's a mystery here with Judas that that needs to be honored. We can't talk too quickly about him, about yeah. what motivated him, about what his destiny is. I mean, I, th- I think mostly we need to, to be brought to stillness and quietness in the presence of this because it's we're coming up against the mystery of God and we're coming up against the absurdity of wickedness in what Judas decides to do. All that said, what I'm left thinking about this week reading that line is how many times have I had to leave the room for God's work to get started in other people's lives, right? Like, mm-hmm. And in that way that I have been like Judas, right? Both as a, a husband, as a dad, as a friend, as a pastor, where I was, my presence was frustrating what Jesus wanted to do. And Mm -hmm. Peter, of course, has been that kind of presence too. I mean, we know from the gospel of Matthew, right? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You have become a stumbling block to me. Like you, you're meant to be the rock upon which I build. Although, um, Robbie Waddell and I were talking about this and he pointed out something I've never, I've never made this connection before, but in the gospel of Matthew, the rocky soil is the soil where the seed springs up quickly, but has no depth. So when Jesus calls Peter the rock, it's a call. It's not a compliment necessarily. It's a call back to that shallowness, (laughs) which Peter immediately then, in acts, right? Like, like, like in the moment proves the point with his, right. with his response. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Now you've become a stumbling block to me. So there's a lot of, a lot of wordplay there and irony, but yeah. the, and we're about to see that again in the, the passage that follows this one in John, Peter insisting that he would never betray Jesus, that, you know, he would go wherever Jesus has to go and get there first. But yeah, I, th- I think it's important that we take seriously the possibility that our presence is an is a hindrance to what God is doing in the lives of other people and those closest to us, those we we know well, those we don't know well. And if we don't believe that, then I don't think we're we're, we're not self aware. Like we we're not self aware as we need to be that it's possible for. Yeah, yeah, we just have to take that seriously. I think. And the fact that that hindrance can be like, it doesn't being that hindrance doesn't have to be this kind of like absolute betrayal, right? It can be incredibly well intentioned. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the, the most effective hindrance is well intentioned. That's why it's so effective to go back to Bonifer for a moment. Right. And you've been, you've been talking about this with the church, but in life together, he has that, kind of startling line, God hates visionary dreamers. And Mm -hmm. what he means in context is there are people who come to a community with ideals about what the community should be, how the community should function. And those are the people who always disrupt and interrupt and corrupt the work of God in a people. It's the, it's the high minded, idealistic, motivated people who are the real problems. That who caused the real difficulty in the long run. I don't know if you've read Donald Nichols' The Testing of Hearts. No, I haven't. It's really good. I think I think I heard about it from Rowan Williams. A lot it turns out a lot of what I read is because I hear Rowan Williams reference it. Yeah. But 
Good way to go. <laughs> the this book is essentially a journal he, of his time when he was leading an ecumenical prayer center outside Jerusalem, and it's an, I think let me see if I can look at the title. The Ecumenical Institute of Tartur, I think, is the name of it. I don't see it here on the back, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Ecumenical Institute at Tartur near Jerusalem. And he's, so he's working with Christians of different faiths. And some of this is interfaith dialogue too. He was. And he keeps a journal of it. So this is from December 1981. And I just want you to hear this and hear it in light of what we're saying about Judas and in light of what we heard from Bonifer about visionary dreamers. I can clearly see, he says, something, the answer to a puzzle that has been nagging at my mind for some time. That is, how do, how do you account for the difference, which anyone with even half an eye can see, between the quality of the presence here of the Benedictine monks and all of the rest of us? Right. So he says, you know, we've got these Benedictines and there's a quality of presence they have that the rest of us just do not share. And he says, for long enough, I have been conscious of such a difference, but I've never been able to put my finger on it. Like, why is it so different? The answer has to be that the Benedictines come here out of 100% obedience to their community. And so they bring no hidden agenda, not at least in relation to this community. So they've been sent here. They're just obeying orders. Like they didn't choose to come here. They were made to come here. And therefore they don't have hidden agendas for this community as such. Right. And so he goes on to say, in contrast, all the rest of us have come here with some hidden agenda. For some of us, it may only constitute 5% of our motivation, while for others, it may represent almost 100%. But no matter how small the percentage it may be in any one of our cases, still it does to some degree flaw our presence here and constantly gives rise to difficulties. It makes members of the community frustrated and angry with one another when the hidden agenda of one person clashes with the hidden agenda of another person. Not surprisingly, therefore, the people who are forever causing dissension are precisely those who have hidden their agendas so deeply that they no longer believe they have any. <laughs> Man. That cuts. That yeah, pierces. Does. But it's 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 the same point, right, that Bonifer's making, right? That you mm-hmm. if you come with your ideals, you will warp your own presence. And it will make your presence a hindrance. Like you will interrupt the flow. You won't be able to keep God from being God, but you will determine how God has to be God to the people around you. And right. we've, we have to reckon with that reality. I mean, think about first Corinthians when Paul tells the, tells them when you come together, it is not good. Like, and we have to accept that it's possible for a community to exist and to relate in such a way that the people who are formed in that community are malformed. They're, they're less Christian because of, their associations in this community. And then I have to assume, not assume, but accept and grapple with the possibility that the way I'm living my life is actually destructive for others, right? That it's, it's harming them. It's making them less like Christ. I'm making, 
I'm making it harder for them to know the Lord and for mm-hmm. them to, to live in freedom. And, and so those, uh, yeah, we, we, we've got to just make this point. Like, I think we're kidding ourselves right up until we acknowledge that that's possible at that. The moment we acknowledge it's possible. Now we can start the reflection. Right. And so maybe at that point, then hopefully living together, praying together, maybe we'll come to see hidden agendas that yes. are even hidden from ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. That we buried and didn't know we buried. Right. And exactly. that's the hope, right? Is that if we can at least acknowledge, okay, it may be that I've hidden agendas. Mm-hmm. Expose them, Lord, if if I have. Like once we come to that place of honesty and truthfulness before the Lord and before each other, then I think they can begin to surface and, and we can mm-hmm. get free of them. Yeah. 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 So I don't okay. think it's hopeless. Yeah. But I mean, we can't be naive about it. Yeah. Well, let me, if I can then, because talking about agendas and the possibility of being a hindrance, uh, it does, does kind of bring me to uh, the Acts yeah, passage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's week. exactly so, what Peter says. Yeah. So let's, let's go there. Right. So in Acts 11, Peter is reflecting on this experience that he had. But he's reflecting on it because he's kind of he's been that's being demanded of him, right? So it starts off like this. Now the apostles and the believers who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also accepted the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him, saying, Why did you go to the to uncircumcised men and eat with them? <laughs> it's such an astounding <laughs> Oh my gosh. Like just just an aside. So I was raised as you were like in fundamentalist circles. We were we were told that to believe the Bible is true means everything the Bible says has to be assumed to be true in the way that I assume the truth works. Right. So Noah's ark, Goliath, the fish that swallowed Jonah, all of that stuff is literally true. And again, all we meant by literally is it's true in the way that I imagine the truth to work. Yep. Right. But with all of that in the background, I would say this passage right here might be the most unbelievable passage in all of scripture because <laughs> at the end of it, they, these people question Peter, why did you do this? Clearly aggrieved that he has associated with Gentiles. And then Peter tells his story, and they are silenced, and then praise God. <laughs> like, I don't believe this. I don't believe it's possible for offended people, legalistic and self-righteous, to be converted because someone tells their story. <laughs> like, I can believe a fish swallowed Jonah. I can believe right. Noah built an ark, and the earth was flooded, and he saved two of each kinds of animal. Like, all of that, no problem. Yeah. Not a challenge for me to believe, but this, this is a challenge for me. Right. There's no way. <laughs> oh. They're just silent. Yeah. But it no, I mean, good. to to your point, I mean, all jokes aside, it, it's, it's remarkable, right? That Luke says, you know, it's the Gentiles have been occlu- included and they're scandalized and they're scandalized by Peter. Like, it's like they're, they're like, okay, whatever, God has worked yeah. with the Gentiles, but Peter, Great. you yeah. broke the rules. Like that's whatever's happening in their life is fine, but you, you shouldn't be doing this. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know mm-hmm. 
rules you answer to. It's startling and, and should be really sobering. It is. And I, I mean, I'm interested to hear your take on that, that question, because I mean, I feel like that is okay. Maybe not the rest of it, but the why, right? Why did you do this? Which is a question that when it's posed to us, it, it's, it's one of those questions that makes us feel especially like I've got to respond. Uh, it, it, it makes us assume a kind of posture. I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but like I have to respond in kind. I've got, I've got to answer mm-hmm. why. Yeah. So let's, let's let Bonifer help us here. So in his Christology, he, he argues that you're not allowed to ask the how question in relation to Jesus. You're only a- allowed to ask the who question because Jesus is the one who makes the how what it is. Right. If you if you were to ask how can this be true of Jesus, you would be assuming that Jesus answers to certain conditions he didn't set. Right. That there are conditions Jesus has been fitted into that control what's possible for him. And Bonifer's saying, no, no, no. Like Jesus is the one who sets the conditions. He is the conditioner, not the conditioned. Right. Mm-hmm. And and so the question is not how, but who. And I think pastorally the why question is often a form of the how question Christologically that when we're pushing for the why again, not in every case, but often that why question is exposing. We assume we're the ones making the final decision that we're the ones in authority, that we're the ones who understand, understand the rules and how to apply them. You know, there's that passage in James about when you judge another, you actually judge the law because you set yourself above the above the law as the one who makes the judgments. Right. And he says, who are you to judge another? Who are you to judge another? And Peter here asked that same question. Who am I to hinder the work of God? Right. And there's a kind of arrogation, an arrogance or a, an assumption where we arrogate to ourselves the right to, to speak of others as if we know the law and we know how the law should be applied. And why questions are often exposing that arrogance, that, that mm-hmm. presumption, I think. Not, not in every case, but often. And we need to recognize that our, we need to question our questions, right? We need to hold our questions lightly and realize that it, it's possible that I'm asking this why question in a way that hinders what God is doing, that, that Judas can ask why. Why wasn't this Mary's ointment? Why wasn't it sold and given to the poor? Right? right. Like that's Judas's question. And we, we need to recognize that in ourselves. When that question starts to rise up in us, we need to take seriously the possibility that, that that why is a hindrance and is, is, is born because we're restricting what God is doing. But that said, were you going to say something more? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was just going to say more about that why, but I don't... No, go, go ahead. I, I want to make another point about how the why, the why question someone else is asking might need to be taken differently, but go, go ahead. Well, I mean, it just, it just sparks a kind of memory for me about when we were at that phase in the pandemic where they're talking about what's essential and what's non-essential. Yeah. And of course, there was a lot of conversation, at least in kind of in my world, 
uh, and in worlds that are adjacent to mine, that was about church yeah, and church being essential or non-essential. And I remember seeing someone post about that and, and it, it seemed, I guess, I don't know. I mean, it seemed like it kind of brought them to a moment of crisis, which was yeah. basically they were like, yeah, like why is church, why is church essential? Right. Well, yeah. And we want to tread lightly here. Like, and I, this is threading a needle. I mean, we need real care here yeah. because what I don't want to do is leave the impression to in, on anybody that like, there, there's no need to be legalistic about church attendance. There's no need to, to shame anyone right. or, or to talk about church as essential in a way that's clearly about preserving a way of life that matters to me. I mean, I think sometimes people are talking about the importance of going to church, but what they really mean is I have to preach a sermon and I want as many people in the room as possible when I do. Right. <laughs> right. Like that's not, that's, that's a not so hidden agenda and, yeah. or, or a little more to the point. So much of what we say about the necessity of going to church starts to feel like wanting to preserve a way of life, right. Wanting to keep, a kind of churchiness central. So I, I want to be really careful here, as careful as I can be, which yeah. probably still isn't careful enough. But yeah, I think there is something essential and something that should be undeniably, obviously essential about gathering. Gathering to, to hear the word and to speak it, to receive the Eucharist, to receive blessing, to offer prayers of intercession, to be sent out into mission, to give thanks to God, to praise together. Like all, all of that is good in and of itself. There's not good because of some result it brings about. It's good in and of itself. I mean, in the Revelation reading this week, John gets a glimpse into the age that is to come. He gets a glimpse into the end of ages. And what he sees is people gathered in praise people gathered in thanksgiving like that when we are healthy when we are right when we're right with each other and right with ourselves we want to be together and enjoy i mean that's that's just at the heart of what it means to be human so that should be clear but this is what i was going to say a moment ago sometimes when our children or when outsiders start to ask why questions or even insiders start to ask why questions it's because we have failed so abysmally to be true that we've con we've left them in, in deep confusion about something that should be obvious. Right? We've lived, and here I'm talking specifically about pastors, priests, bishops. We've lived and guided. We've lived in and cared for and guided churches in such a way that we've we've left the impression that. This is not, it's only essential if it works for you, right? That if, if you, if you benefit from it, great, if not fine, you know, I mean like that or worse, either we've done that or worse, we've harmed people, which makes them wonder why would I, like, why would I subject myself, make myself vulnerable in spaces where I have been harmed? So either because we've misled people by convincing them that church exists to give them what they want or because we've actually harmed people and not given them what they need. Those, their why questions, why should I do this, are a reflection of 
how we've obscured the truth. We've obscured something that should be obvious. Hope, hopefully, I'm that's hurt in the right spirit here. Like the last thing I want is to shame the people who are weak, wounded, disoriented. I want right. to sober the people who are answerable for what happens in our churches. Right. So I, I want the people who actually have a say in the way our churches function to hear what we're saying. I'm not talking about to the people. I'm not talking to the people who aren't yet comfortable because of the pandemic or aren't comfortable because they've been wounded or aren't comfortable because they're confused about what place the church should have in their lives. Like this is not a critique of them. This is a critique of those of us who have been called and given a responsibility to, to guide the church. Right. No, I, I, I hear that. And so it, I, I know we need to wrap this up. Um, but before, like I kind of asked, cause I do have one like last, last question, but let me give kind of a penultimate question yeah. here. What do you make then of Peter's response to that? Why? Yeah. Well, it's striking, right? That he just tells his story. Right. But right? he just says, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And yeah. I think sometimes we have to be really discerning here. I don't think there are any principles to follow, but it is often, I think, the case that if there is any room for truth-telling in moments of conflict, and often there isn't really room, like all you can do is like Jeremiah was with Hananiah, Jeremiah 27, 28, I think. Sometimes all you can do is walk away, right? Yeah. Or like Jesus before Herod, all you can do is be quiet. But sometimes you can speak, and when you speak, I think it's important that you speak from your heart. And so what Peter does is testify. Let me tell you what happened to me. And he doesn't he doesn't embellish the story. He doesn't make himself look better than Luke had made him look the chapter previous. Right? He doesn't try to tell the story in such a way that he's glamorized. And that's to his credit, right? And and he says, you know, I was wrong. And here's how God converted me. And I realized it. And there's this striking difference right at the end between where he is and where they are, even when they're praising God. So the, do you have it in front of you? Can, can you read it? The, the very end of the passage where Peter is, he has this remembrance. I remembered. And then notice the difference between what he says about himself and what they say. Mm -hmm. And I remembered the word of the Lord how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave them the same gift that he gave uh, gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? When they heard this, they were silenced. And they praised God saying, then God has given even to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Right. So at least one way of hearing this is they're saying, wow. You're right. God blesses even those people, right? So there's still so much condescension. It's a yeah. move in the right direction, but right, yeah. still so sanctimonious, right? Mm -hmm. But with Peter, there's this kind of humility. Who am I that I could hinder God? Mm -hmm. Right? And it's this remembrance. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Like he's the Lord He's the one who determines what matters, right? He's the one who sets the conditions. Who am I to hinder that? And that yeah. kind of deference, that, that kind of holy submission, yieldedness, 
is it's such mo- so markedly different from where Peter was in John thirteen, right? And yeah, in in Matthew sixteen. But I, I think I think it's that that's a different question, right? Why they their question is why did you? Peter's question here is who am I? Mm-hmm. Like who am I to hinder what God is doing? And he he stands back and gets out of the way and and lets God be God, right? Which is Again, that's how we mostly what we do for one another is not hinder, right? Like, I think Eugene Peterson says that about pastoral work, but I think it's true of all care for each other. Like, mostly what we do is not harm. That's not that's not only what we do, but mostly what we do is is not mess it up, not make it harder for God than it needs to be for God to be good to to other people around us. Mm-hmm. So you said you had one more I question. Mean, we'll wrap it up. Well, I didn't even get I didn't even get to Revelation, um, but I I just but I mean I do feel like this is where I have to go, and it's we're reading these passages, and so I'm feeling like well, I'm certainly a hindrance in ways that <laughs> I'm not even aware of. <laughs> Some I probably am, um, mostly not. So my question is one I ask you. I think every single week when we talk, when we talk about the text and that is what's the good news here. Hmm. Yeah. So I think the good news in revelation is this ends in a song, right? So if we think about this, you know, when father Robbie preached at sanctuary a couple weeks ago, he talked about the gospel of John and he used like the post credit scene technique as an example of what's happening in John 21. Mm-hmm. So if, if we think here about a flash forward scene, like essentially what we get here in revelation is a flash forward to the end of everything. And, and so we're seeing this ends in song. So that's, it's good news. Like how my hindrance, as I said before, I can't keep God from being God to you. I can determine how God has to be God to you, but I can't keep God from being God to you. And yeah. I can hinder, but ultimately I cannot completely stymie. Like I can interfere, but I I can't limit God in such a way that you're hopeless. Yeah. So I think that's, that's good news, Mm -hmm. but more particularly in the gospel passage. So after Judas gets up and leaves and Jesus says, now the son of man is glorified. Then he turns to them and, and says, where I'm going, you cannot go. Right. And this is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And he's not, I mean, you can hear this, and many Christians have heard this as, love the people who are still in the room. Yeah. Not the people who left. The people who are still in the room. But I think the good news is, Jesus is going where they cannot go, because he's going after Judas. Mm-hmm. he's going where they cannot go because Judas has gone to hell. He's gone to death. He's gone to the place of self-destruction. He's gone to, through suicide, into the place that is unreachable for all of us. Mm-hmm. And that we're not just to love the people who are in the room, but we're to love those who go where we cannot go. Right. And to love Jesus because he's the one who goes where we cannot go. And to know that even if we can't follow him there exactly, we can cheer him on 
and we can be we can be delighted that he goes and that he comes back not alone. Hmm. That's good news. That is good news. Man. Thanks, Chris. Golly. I hope I haven't been too much of a hindrance to this conversation. <laughs> well, like, I guess in keeping with the text, as soon as we stop talking, Jesus will turn to everybody else and say, and now <laughs> I Perfect. am glorified. Good. Well, let's get to that. And yes. Let, the sooner it can, let's get out of the way. What you must do, do quickly. <laughs> right. Thanks, man. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this with me. See you, brother.